Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am with indefatigable commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend and listener and viewer, you find the conversations on this channel enlightening, entertaining, stimulating to the mind, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing. We're in the midst of growing a community of inquisitive minds, among which yours most certainly belongs. For content specific to mindfulness, wellness, literature, philosophy, and sleep, do consider visiting my sister project, Numa, P-N-E-U-M-A, by Daniel Finneran, uh, to which I'll include a link in the show notes below. My guest today, with whom I'm absolutely ecstatic to have the opportunity to chat, is Martin Hogue. Uh, Martin is a licensed architect and landscape architect whose focus is on analytical drawings. He's an associate professor in the Department of Landscape Architecture at New York's prestigious Cornell University. Among his fields of interest, no pun intended, is the notion of a site as a cultural construction an idea upon which I can't wait for Martin to dilate. Widely cited and published in a bunch of great academic journals, Martin's latest book, Making Camp, a visual history of camping's most essential items and activities, is available everywhere that fine books are sold. Martin, it's a pleasure and an honor to be joined by you today. Thank you so very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. As am I. And I want to begin with a hypothetical. Now, if you could select three people and only three to accompany you on a two week long camping trip, whom would you choose? These three people could be living, dead, famous, historically significant, obscure. Your choice is totally unconstrained. By whom would you want to be accompanied and why? That's a great question. I. Um... Oof, I would have to probably include um, individuals both living and dead. I think Horace Kephart would be a really wonderful individual who I just uh, prepared a, a lecture on last week. And so I think he is known largely as uh, re revered as the Dean of American Camping, uh, was uh, published this wonderful book, uh, Camping and Woodcraft, like one of the kind of most important literary works on on uh, camping ever published. It's a, a considerably large book, about 900 pages long. I said, I think he would be a wonderful guide. I would um, probably have to include uh, some of the mentors, some of the individuals who have really supported me in my research on camping the last few years. My friend Terry Young, who lives in California, would be, I think, a, a wonderful um, uh, friend to uh, be on this journey also. I'm sure he would enjoy Kephart's company. Uh, and I probably, my wife, Lori, who's been with me uh, really every single camping trip 
uh, that I've taken over the last 20 years, we've gone together. So I think we've experienced it and we've, we've shared a lot uh, in our journey. So that would be, I think that would be a really pretty, pretty great trio. I agree. I think without having met these people and read their works, it does seem like a, a good full group of four. Now, I was thinking about this question the past day or two. My response is a little bit different. <laughs> I chose Alexander the Great, <laughs> Ernest Hemingway, yeah. and Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. And, and I did so for very specific reasons. I thought the the vision of Alexander the Great would be helpful for two weeks, you know, not for uh, an entire 10 years of uh, service. I thought Ernest Hemingway would be good just because of multitude of skills, his ability to, to hunt big game and also to, to memorialize what is happening, to write about it. Yeah, you would have great stories too at the campfire. I, I, sure. Exactly, and that's the other point I was just about to make. The stories around the campfire would be would just be quite, yeah. extraordinary. So Hemingway, and also the fishing uh, abilities, if we were near some water. And then Gordon Ramsay for the preparation of those, of those, uh, those big game catches. So mm -hmm. those would be my three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. And then I thought of some fictional characters. What about that? Could you think of a couple fictional char characters uh, from literature or for f from film? Oh, boy. Uh, you want to be accompanied? Yeah, that's really a difficult one. Um... I have to think about that one a little bit longer. Um, but no, that's a that's a great question. I mean, there's so few films uh, that that feature camping that I think that's uh, always I'm always I teach a lot of film related classes, so I'm always keeping lists on various topics related to landscape and buildings and cities, and I have a, a list going on sort of camping films where camping is. And the list is rather short. So I think that would be, I would have to, to think about that one a little bit longer. Maybe John Candy from The Great Outdoors? <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> and, a, and a celebrated Canadian. So that would be, that would be maybe, doubly, maybe an doubly, Canadian. Yeah, doubly fitting. Yeah. Uh, My, when I think of this question, I think in response, uh, maybe Huckleberry Finn. Mm -hmm. I think Huckleberry Finn would be just an excellent uh, camping companion. Uh, it might get us into some trouble, but but overall, I think that he'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you, <clears throat> and I have here your book, to which I'll be making some references, and I know you do as well. Um, the more recent photographs in your book, those dating from the 1960s on, yeah. they, they disabused me of the, the romantic notions that I had of camping. <laughs> when I think of camping, camping in its truest and its purest sense, I think an image um, like this one, if you can see it on page 47. Yep. Yep. Um, I, you know, I think of the, the hikers I passed by when I was uh, trekking on Mount Mitchell in North Carolina a couple of years ago who, mm -hmm. who sort of had this spirit about them. They just found an open spot and set up their tents and you know, all their paraphernalia and, and, yep. and you know, set out to it. Uh, but then I turned to page 17 of your book at the bottom of which is a group of, if you can yeah. see it, yeah, a, Bruce group Davidson. a group of sedentary, unhappy, <laughs> mostly overweight people um, sitting in lawn chairs in a circular formation around what seems to be a sacred box of Ritz crackers, which mm -hmm. <laughs> for you watching, 
without the book you you can't quite see but it's right there in the center uh, it, it's i think it's very intentional that the grids are right in the center of that and part. i think so as well um so talk to me a little bit about this incongruity between mm -hmm. the ideal of right. camping the the ruggedness the intimate connection with nature the fierce independence and the somewhat decadent reality of which mm -hmm. i think glamping or glamorous camping is the prime example yeah no, I think that's a really great, I think you, the selection of these two photographs is, is, um, hits the kind of, the, the kind of tone or the ambition of this book uh, really, really well that, I mean, for me, I got interested in camping, not as a, uh, with my first camping check-in experience about over 20 years ago when I arrived at this campground and I was given a map, I was really taken aback by this idea. I thought, I had imagined in my mind, I'm not exactly sure what I thought was going to happen, but I thought I might be directed to an open field at the edge of a woods and say, go find a spot for yourself. And instead having this map and the attendant using a highlighter to prescribe a very specific campsite where I should go and set up my tent and a sleeping bag that a friend of mine had lent me for the summer. And I think it, what I realized a few years later is that there was a real disconnect between what I thought was going to happen, which I think is the first image you pointed to, a kind of an image uh, in my mind of um, backwood adventurers from the 19th century, right, creating the camp from scratch out of bark and branches and, and fallen trees, and then the kind of reality on the ground, which was a series of cars parked at their individual campsites, people grilling, lawn chairs. And so for me, the scope of this book has been about figuring out in a way what change, what the, the kind of history of the transformation between these two images that you pointed to, I think is, is exactly right. You know, that the, the ideal is, the idea is the same, but the physical landscape where these experiences take place is entirely different. And um, that's been sort of the ambition of the book. And for me, I think I'm a, I, I like camping, but I'm actually not like an enthusiast who will set out, you know, every Friday night. We don't head out every Friday, like friends of mine say, you know, Terry, one of my three uh, companions who might be on this hy hypothetical trip every Friday will will head out on a, on, a, on a camping journey. I like to think about camping when I'm camping. I like to observe my settings. I like to observe other people. And in a way, that's what's fueled a little bit the kind of direction of this book. You know, it's a. It's a serious book, but it's also a little bit tongue-in-cheek in terms of acknowledging the kind of the character of the physical setting where these uh, these experiences now take place. That if you glance at your neighbor even for a second, that fantasy that we all entertain in our minds kind of falls apart. And I like that idea. I'm, I'm intrigued by that idea, and I think that's what. Uh, but it all started with this map. You're um, something of a you're something of a philosophical camper. You're like a Kantian camper. Sure. No, I mean I, I'm, I'm interested <laughs> in, in observing as yeah. much as I am in, in experiencing it for for ourselves, for myself. But I think it's um, that's. Um, but I think as an architect who's and I, I the one thing I would correct in your introduction is I'm I'm a, I'm a licensed architect, but I'm a trained in landscape architecture. I'm not a professional landscape architect, but I am interested in physical settings and i think for me campgrounds are very much part of the um, uh of that kind of range of places that i like to think about 
um, in my in my work. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. so you're something of a metacognitive camper when you're when you are in the act of camping. You're thinking about the act of camping. Yes, of course. So, no, and I think that's yes. I think that's a really good point. And but it's one who's going to say is kind of aware of some of the ironies and who's leaning into those and trying to understand them. So I want to think that the book is very, it's both very serious, you know, in terms of understanding the evolution of the setting or the different pieces of gear, but it's also one that, I mean, I had so much fun writing this book and I hope that comes across in some way that there's a little bit of kind of tongue in cheek, you know, here and there where some of these photographs that you showed that Bruce, Davidson photographs in the 1960s for me capture exactly kind of what I was some of the discomfort that I experienced on my first trip you know and when I saw his images I knew they were other like-minded people in the world who had been intrigued by similar uh, questions or situations. I think that irony is very rich I think that it is detectable Sure. Um, by, all, by all close readers, and it makes it a very enjoyable read. Uh, like you said, well, it, is a you. it is a serious book in that, you know, you are enumerating, as we will get into, enumerating the most essential features of camping, <clears throat> um, but also um, contrasting them as they were maybe originally intended to be put yes. to use and as they are today. So it's exactly. it's really, it's really uh, interesting in that regard. Um, but let me focus in on just something you said. Uh, I had this planned and it's appropriate that you said it now. In the afterword to your book, you admit, and you admitted just now with refreshing candor, that you haven't, quote, come to really enjoy and love camping all that much. Now, you describe yourself as having felt like you were an actor in or a spectator to a series of tightly defined scenes, almost as though you were, you know, in uh, a narrative work. You say that each script changes very little from one campground to the next. Um, so maybe short of totally immersing yourself in the fertile bosom of nature, like uh, Henry David Thoreau or John mm -hmm. Muir, uh, what do you think you could do to feel less uh, like an actor or a spectator uh, in your approach toward nature and camping sites? I mean, I, I will I will say that we, um, my wife and I have had wonderful camping experiences. So I, I think I'm maybe uh, art articulating a kind of broader point about my own motivations behind this work, but we've had many very satisfying trips. I think that many of the most satisfying trips have been oftentimes um, in, areas where um, uh, where campgrounds may not have been as busy or where we've had to walk into a campsite sort of from a from a parking area so a little bit more remote um, but I um, uh, so there, there have been many very satisfying experiences I mean that's that's absolutely true uh, again the, the larger arc remains that I think what interests me about this has been to understand this disconnect that, that we that we experience I think the question of scale is one that I think is really important in this book that as camping has grown in popularity we've had to develop infrastructure and campgrounds are part of that that to that allow um, you know large numbers of people to um, 
take part in that experience. And as campgrounds scale up, become larger, denser, more populated, uh, along with, with that comes that challenge of um, uh, uh, the authenticity of that experience kind of changes with that at the same time. Right. And, and as a camper, you want to experience a certain intimacy with the, your natural surroundings, but yet you find yourself, you know, stacked in a very commercial like way sure. yeah. in your little plot. It's almost like when you go to the, to the butcher and you're given a ticket and, um, and you're waiting your order, it's, it's somewhat similar to that. I mean, I, I like the irony too, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the book that I think a, a group that may have vacated a campsite uh, in the morning, you know, will be replaced by an entirely different group maybe a couple of hours later. So there's a kind of constant flow of people in, in and out of the campground. Uh, and those groups will remain forever unknown to one another, you know, that, but there's a kind of when you arrive at that plot, the emptiness of the plot suggests a kind of you know that it's a freshly discovered place but i think there's a really interesting um uh relationship between the elements that are there some of the furnishings that are there like the fire pit or the the picnic table and so on that are suggest kind of what's going to happen there but it's not so fully developed that there's not a space for each camper to create, uh, to, to have a certain sense of agency and, and, and developing their encampment, you know? So they, they're still part of the role that still ours to, to play in this entire process, to, to build our own tent, to cook our own meal. And so there's still in some ways, some connection to that initial idea of what it was like, what it would have been like to be camping out in the wilds of the Adirondacks, you know, 150 years ago or so. Do you ever find yourself crafting a fictionalized narrative of the people who came before you? <laughs> That's a great question. I, mean, I would say one of the reasons, well, one of the roles or the visions I had for this book was to, that it's something that could be brought, it's not something that would be read in your house or your your apartment, but at the campsite. And so it's one that is meant to bring some of these characters directly at the campground with you. And so over a meal or over the the light of the campfire, you you pull it out of your of your bag and you start reading. So it's a kind of piece of gear in itself. And it's it's a companion. It's a it's one that helps to bring comfort, presence, context to what that experience is about, I think. At least that was how I thought about the, the book initially. My expectation is that this book will will be at least temporarily <laughs> brought to a multitude of campsites. And, I hope and, so. And your, that would be great. That's your, what it's meant to be. And your literary footprint will will have uh, <laughs> stamped every plot across this it's, beautiful land. <laughs> it's, it's even meant, I mean, my first book was a quite large book. It was kind of 12 by 12. This one is meant its size to kind of, uh, that was a really deliberate question that we tackled a few years ago when we were designing the book, that it was meant to, you know, be a much more, uh, it was meant to be a piece of gear. It was meant to be something that was easy to carry and to move around. It's not a coffee table book. It's yeah, and I think, I think you and the publishers and the, the people behind the production of this book succeed in that attempt. I do want to talk about the design of the book a little bit more, but yeah. 
just for a little while longer, I want to, to focus on that, that disconnect that you mentioned people feel. Uh, now, when you're at a campsite, as you are philosophizing about camping, do you ever actually engage with people and ask them about this disconnect? Or do you fear that maybe by revealing it, you might perhaps hamper the, the good time that they're having? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I have been um, an artist in residence at, a, at a, a small art park outside of Syracuse at the Stone Quarry Hill Art Park the last several years. And I was asked to, uh, to contribute an, an artwork there first in 2017. And I proposed that um, to turn the art park into a campground. And so uh, on this campground every summer for four weekends every summer, uh, there are four dedicated campsites that are temporarily created there that allow uh, visitors of the art park to kind of live on in the art park for uh, 48 hours, right? And really appreciate the art there in a, a completely different way. And I think, uh, so I, I fancy myself in that aspect, at least as a campground manager myself, like I, I don't just write about it, but I'm actually the, the host of that experience over those four weekends. And, um, I've had derived so much satisfaction from engaging with the the visitors to the art park and to the campground in that capacity and that role. And um, so I know, I think that's been, that would be the one moment I think where I, I see it as part of my re responsibility to kind of orient people to the art park, to the project, to the facilities that I've created temporarily around the art park. And so in that role, yes, I, I, I love kind of meeting people, talking to them about my work, about their expectations and finding some common ground there. That's been a, a really satisfying experience for the last. We, we've done five editions of that, of that project now. And it's every weekend, every year is always different, different people. Uh, some come back, but it's just always a pleasure to kind of uh, get to know people around that project. And through your interactions with this diversity of people, have you found that the majority prefers or at least aspires to that rugged individualism, the ideal that we discussed? Or do you think that a lot of people are more content with the, the more relaxed, well, I shouldn't say relaxed, the more structured, I would say, almost decadent reality that we face? What do you think, having you know engaged with some of these people? Yeah, I, mean, I will say that um, the uh, even kind of in the early decades of recreational camping in the 19th century, uh, this notion of comfort has always been central to that experience. And so it's not so much it's not a reflection of the modern society that we live in now. Uh, it, even in the early beginnings of recreational camping people were uh, reluctant in some ways to leave behind some of the comforts that they enjoyed at home. And it's been this sort of, uh, you know, that ability to entertain both sides of that, of that uh, experience where you're both enjoying that kind of ruggedness of the landscape of the settings without entirely sacrificing those comforts that I find really interesting. So I think that's always been a central question in recreational camping in general, and uh, one that seems to be accelerating in some ways now with the, you know, with the kind of proliferation of gear and RVs and so on and so forth. But it is, it's always been there in, in some ways. 
I have a tendency of uh, perhaps trying to derive more meaning from from things than perhaps exists. So you'll have to excuse me for that. <laughs> but uh, do you think that uh, this trend speaks to something a little bit deeper in our culture? You know, this this movement away from that rugged individualism of our forefathers and and you are forebears and of course they did have their comforts but they were very different comforts from those that we enjoy today uh, in uh, that, that they enjoyed in the 19th century the late 19th century and the early 20th century um you know or have we just become you know through affluence and age uh, you know decadent old folk <laughs> I, I i i guess what i'm doing is almost using camping as a microcosm uh, through which to view the rest of the culture. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong to do so? Uh, or do you sense maybe that there is something to that? I mean, I will say that I think um, the, there is not a single type of camper. So people have different expectations. And when they head out, um, you know, there are people who will, um, uh, head out into uh you know a united states national forest and set up their campsites uh really in a kind of completely spontaneous kind of rustic way and there are people who park in walmart parking lots and who overnight there so it is impossible to kind of identify a single idea of what um, people expect or think about when they go camping and so in that respect my book maybe takes the more extreme position of looking at the proliferation of those comforts. Uh, but I think I would, I've known, I've run into, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who will refuse to, to camp in a, in a large national park campground because it's far too developed for them, right? So it, it's really impossible to kind of summarize that experience to a, a, a single standard. I see, I see. I uh, think. Yeah, and in your book, actually, you mentioned the fact that one of the modern iterations of, of camping is what you just described, is people actually parking in, in a Walmart parking lot. Um, so it just really highlights uh, the array of ways in which you can yep. technically be camping. So yep. it's not, it, you don't have to be a purist, as I kind of described it earlier in my idealized version of of just having basically the clothes on your back, a tent and, you know, right. a, bow, a bow and arrow. It doesn't have to be this sort of Arcadian vision of, mm -hmm. of, of a pre-modern pre um, experience. Mm -hmm. It can be you know, setting up overnight in that, in that Walmart parking lot. I know I see that even around the town in which I live. I see, especially in, in one area, uh, a man with a small little trailer in which he occasionally sleeps. And I, I don't see it there every night. I don't think he's homeless, but... It, to me, it's sort of like this interesting, different way of camping, if I can think of it in that way. Of course, he might not. It might, for him, be a maybe a, right. a desperate measure that he's taking in order to to stave off the elements and to protect himself. But yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a really that's a broader conversation, and I've tried to limit sort of my thinking here to to camping for recreational purposes, right? So it's quite a a very deliberate decision that we make to actually seek that experience out. I think when it when it comes to us in these un unfortunate ways, I think we're really in a, in a really different place, even though, yeah, so I, this has been a kind of book about 
uh, the more traditional idea of really voluntarily kind of seeking out. But I do think that uh, if you, you know, even if you find yourself into these, some of these more developed or more heavily developed campgrounds across the country, um, that uh, the campsite can act as a kind of base, uh, as a home base from which one can head out into the, the broader expanse of the park for hikes and, and other activities that are could be far more rewarding in some ways. I think the, the campsite then becomes a kind of home base at which you're not spending necessarily that much time, but you are returning to it night, nightly or daily, right, for your meals or for other other activities. And so it's not it's not to say that one goes to that spot and kind of stays there for the duration of their trip either. This might be leading us a little bit off the path of the conversation, mm -hmm. which I think we're fruitfully uh, set out. But I mentioned in my introduction, one of your areas of study is the notion of site as cultural construction. Mm -hmm. Can you perhaps expand on this idea for us? Um, yes, I think that's a, that's a, I try to, I mean, to me, the idea of camping and the campsite, the, you know, if you separate that word is, is a site where that the reenactment of some of these activities are, are taking place, although the site itself has been created before uh, any group of camper arrives at that place. And I think uh, that's very a di very different idea than in the 19th century where that entire site was created from scratch by the individuals who occupied that particular place. And so for me as, a, as an architect, as a designer, um, we uh, place a lot of agency in, in the role of a site in, in informing our work. When you, as an architect, you often think about a site as something that exists but will be supplanted by a building. The, once the building is constructed, the site itself is, is no longer there. It's, it's being re replaced in some way by a structure. I think in landscape architecture, we maybe approach things a little bit differently where the kind of, um, but for, for me, a site is a designation. It's, um, you know, if I were walking down the street and I could point uh, to you, um, this is the site where my bicycle was stolen last year. That place exists in my mind as kind of linking a place and an event. Uh, for other individuals, that same site does not exist. It doesn't have the same kinds of qualities or associations. So for me, the site is first and foremost a designation. It's something that intellectually we assign meaning to a specific place. And I think that's what drew me to camping as well, is that we are again, we've set up an infrastructure where all of these multiple sites exist for us to fill them up with our experiences, with our activities, with our, with our labor, you know, to, to um, imagine ourselves as being uh, rugged, backward adventurers, at least in some cases. Martin, Martin you truly are a, a philosophical architect camper. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, I think all architects are. <laughs> Is that I mean, I, now? You're the first outside George Costanza <laughs> from Side. <laughs> I think you're the first true uh, architect that I've paid much attention to <laughs> now, yeah. and and had the good opportunity to to talk with. Is that is that a common 
way of thinking in the architectural world? Because you're almost talking about, oh, I don't know, the, the metaphysics of, mm -hmm. of sites and locations. There's sure. something very profound about what you're saying. And I think intuitively a lot of people can feel that way. Like if a site uh, carries with it some grave significance, whether good or bad, it of course is meaningful to a to a very different extent and on a very different level. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't really articulate that, but you're talking about something that's, that's, that's very subtle and, and very powerful. So that philosophical view, is that something that I think that is unique to you or, or is it sort of inculcated as you are pursuing the, the career of an architect? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question too. I will say that I'm, for me, one of the reasons why I started to think about uh, sites, not necessarily the kind of buildings that we put on those sites, has explains in part the reason why I started out as in you know, a more formal training as an architect and moved into landscape architecture in some ways that I became more interested in the places than in the kind of constructions that we put on those places. And it's been informed by a number of uh, peers and artists and other sort of individuals and in, in, um, whose work has really helped me to shape that perspective. One of the, the individuals that I often think about that's really important in my own education and sort of career as an architect is, a, is an architect who was Serena Cornell, also uh, Gordon uh, Matta-Clark, who was, uh, came out of Cornell in the 1960s and um, became a really uh, uh, productive, important artist in New York City in the 70s. And one of the projects I always love to think about and that's really shaped my own work is he discovered um, a series of um, residual properties that were, were put up for auction in the borough of Queens. These are lots like um, hundred, like one foot wide by, by 100 foot long. Like all of these weird sort of tiny properties around Queens. And he, bought many of them at auction for $25 a piece. And to me, this project was a revelation. Like it was something about an architect and he called these the fake estates. So they're real estate, they're pieces of real estate, but they're fake in the sense that they don't support the kind of architectural thinking that would normally be connected to a piece of property, like let's put a building on top of it. And that project really changed my whole, <laughs> my whole outlook on what I should be doing with my architectural training. And so I want to think that the camping book in a way is a little bit paying homage to that, to that project, that these are little bits of land, these campsites that kind of play a role in helping us reenact some of these kinds of connections to these backwood adventures. But I really love that project in a way that, um, again, starts to explain how I could go from a traditional ar architectural practice and training into something a little bit more uh, meta, you know, into, into something that really looks at properties, at pieces of land in the city, but in a way that's kind of unexpected, you know, that you, it leads you to find these real weird anomalies that exist in, in the city and to say, these are real. And I, my role is to show you that they exist. I'm going to document, photograph them, uh, find maps where they exist and really kind of bring them to our attention. It's interesting to think that you had this formative experience uh, with a professor who was 
whose work was focused in the city in a, in a highly urbanized what, yeah, he was not a professor of mine, but he was an artist that whose work is as kind of the discovery of that work has shaped my own. I see my, my, my own work. Yeah, I see. I see. Uh, I would just draw the interesting contrast between the work um, to which his career was devoted, you know, in that highly urbanized setting, and that to which yours is currently devoted, which is mm -hmm. quite the contrary, the mm -hmm. the complete opposite. You you took these. Um, profound lessons from his work yep. and are now applying them to a totally different terrain. Right. Maybe you can comment on that a little bit. How does, how does one bridge cross that bridge from the, the highly urbanized to the highly uh, bucolic? Yeah, I, um, that is, I think maybe uh, again, when I first checked into that campground, the instinct that I had when I got that map was something akin to what I experienced when I first saw the fake estates project. Like there was, I didn't, couldn't articulate it fully at that particular point, but I, in my mind, it's not so much that it's urban or rural, but more that we are designated through these representations of the landscape, through, the, through these maps, the existence of these kinds of parcels. And so um, that's maybe goes back to that idea of site, like a site is a designation and by, confirming the existence of these residual lots on the map as he did and what i'm doing with the campsites on the map like circling with a highlighter you you're going to be camping at site number 113 tonight there's a kind of parallel there that spans time it spans geography it, it you know um, but it's not so much a kind of urban versus rural i mean there are many campsites or um, camping experiences i think historically in the 1920s where people camped in cities very almost every city there were about 2000 cities across the country that had a municipal campground um, uh, at the edge of town it could be a, a baseball field or a kind of semi-open field the idea was to capture people <laughs> as they were traveling across the country to have them buy gas and food and supplies in their towns. And so there were moments where camping was quite urban. And if huh. you look at, uh, you know, KOA franchises now, they're often peri-urban. They're at the edge of cities, at the edge of highways. And so we're not necessarily kind of creating this oppositional, like you live in a city, you camp in the wilderness. Like there are conditions that are on a, gradient here that are much more they're sitting somewhere in be in between those two ideals right so they don't have to be so starkly discreet not necessarily right the trouble is i i suppose nowadays when you think of urban camping you think of uh, vagrancy you, you think of you know san francisco which is overrun by tents but there these are people not camping recreationally as we described earlier these are people camping uh, out of necessity or because yeah. of well, I mean, I think these are extremely serious problems that this book does not tackle. I think it's, uh, but it, it's one that I think uh, these are, I mean, and so I, I don't, I'm hesitant to take that on because I think I wanted to reserve this particular study to the kind of this recreational uh, aspect of camping for pleasure. Oh, of uh, course. And, yeah. Of course. Yeah. I just, uh, it's lamentable, of course, and I hope that we see another day, a brighter day, when what you just described is possible again. Because I don't, I don't, well, I can't imagine the last city to which I went was 
was New Orleans, um, the French, America's little French city. Um, and there was a lot of homelessness. There were a lot of tents that I saw under byways. Um, and I can't imagine an open field being sort of preserved for, for passersby who are traveling to stop there and, and, and camp without it being overrun. So, uh, you know, that's a totally different subject that you know, your book, of course, does not address, but it just kind of has me wondering right now. And, and I hope that what you just described is possible again, um, where, where people can go. I, mean, I, I might extend that the idea of that, I think, um, even the ability to uh, enjoy the experience of camping is unfortunately at the moment not available to, to all. Um, that I think it takes uh, a lot of gear, it takes a lot of equipment. Equipment is expensive. Uh, campgrounds or, uh, you know, great campgrounds, great landscapes are often outside of cities, so it takes transportation. Um, there's a competitive nature to reserving good campsites. I think oftentimes now you have to reserve months in advance of even arriving at the campground. You have to reserve your spot. So high-speed internet, um, all of that infrastructure is not available to all. So I think that idea that campgrounds uh, even represent what America looks like it, is not true, right? It, it is it is not a, uh, a a representation of who we are as a country of all people, uh, and so uh, all peoples. And so I think there are in that idea of enjoying nature, of being out there, uh, it is it is a uh, a privilege. Uh, and it is not an opportunity that is, is available to all. So I think there's a lot of thinking that needs to occur on that end to kind of make it even more democratic and even more available to, to everyone. Yeah, and it's disheartening to reflect on that. This is one pursuit, one hobby, uh, one recreation that should be egalitarian. Like you said, it should be absolutely democratic. We all should have... Uh, access to nature in some small way, perhaps, but but certainly on the grander scales, we want that for all. And it becomes, like you said, cost prohibitive with all those expenses that quickly uh, quickly accumulate. And um, flipping through your book, you can see the way in which the technology has advanced. Oh, just taking for a, a simple example, the way in which we cook our food. You know, uh, there's an image of this solar panel, <laughs> um, very green. Um, contraption that I'm sure is is quite expensive. I think it started as a as a Kickstarter or a crowdfunded type device, uh, but you can see how advanced things become, and how necessarily expensive they can become. Uh, so, like you said, it, it it is somewhat cost prohibitive for a lot of people, and mm -hmm. and hopefully there are still avenues to pursue this hobby, this pastime that are a little bit less expensive and, and uh, open to all. Uh, now, I mentioned that this book is a visual history and it's, it's a, a delightfully visual history of camping. Uh, what is your favorite image in this book? Now, sadly, I can't show everybody, uh, you know, clearly enough the images that adorn it, but they're all in black and white. Mm -hmm. There are photographs, spanning from the late 19th century all the way up to the modern day. There are sketches, beautiful sketches, uh, especially by the hand of uh, one Albert Good, about whom mm -hmm. I want to talk in mm -hmm. a couple of minutes. Uh, so there are a variety of images. What is your favorite? 
Well, I mean, I will say um, that as an architect, I'm a, a, a visual thinker. So I think I'm surrounded by drawings, uh, diagrams, sketches all the time. And so that's how I see the world. That's how I think about the, the world. So it seemed appropriate in this book to kind of balance out uh, the kind of written narrative and the visual storytelling, the the potential of, of these images to kind of tell the, the story. Um, and so, um, and I, there are for the hundreds of images that are in the book, there are hundreds more that did not make it in. So, but I, for me, the process of research oftentimes starts with the images. <laughs> and in a way the story is written around, is, is a way to, to connect the images to one another. Um, the favorite would be, I mean, I think some of these Albert Good uh, images, who is, an, who is an architect who was hired by the Park Service in the 1930s to produce a kind of a compendium of, of um, design standards for, uh, the, uh, uh, for campgrounds and other recreational facilities in state parks and national parks. Those would have to be, I mean, those that those books there that were published in the 30s are absolute touchstones in the in the project. They there are several images or drawings included throughout the book. I think those are probably my favorite if I had to pick. I, I don't know that it'd be one image inside of the book, but I think those the beauty, the execution of those drawings, no architect can be insensitive to that kind of incredible craft. I mean, they're truly spectacular. Nor can the layman like myself. I was totally arrested by how elegant mm -hmm. and quite beautiful these drawings are. And of course, I encourage everybody listening or mm -hmm. watching this video uh, to pick yourself up a copy because uh, the the imagery is just astonishing. Uh, can you, since we've mentioned his name twice now, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Mr. Good, Mr. Albert Good, who he was and why we yeah. should perhaps be a little bit more familiar with him. Sure. I mean, I don't, um, there's not a lot that I know about him. What I do know is that he was uh, an architect in Cleveland and during the depression was hired by the Park Service as a consultant uh, to essentially travel the country and to document um, recreational campgrounds and other facilities that were being developed at the time in national parks and state parks. And so the record that he assembled in, there were two editions of this book um, and uh, during the 1930s. And I think that record really interestingly for me was not just the documentation of things that were being done around the country, like how to build a fire pit, how to build a picnic table and so on, but became kind of design standards on their own that were prolifer proliferated around their country. And in a way explains or helps explain the way uh, or the reason why so many campgrounds look similar to one another, that it was through really his work that those standards were being disseminated across the country. Right, um, so he, he basically created in many regards the standards yeah. uh, but, upon yeah. which all other yeah. uh, campsites were, were based. Well, and the, the publication of these books and then starting to share those across the country, everybody had those books so when they were designing state parks in Idaho or elsewhere, they were using some of Good's work, right? And so this starts to explain why when we travel from one state to another, um, many of the standards will be the same. That's really uh, as a result of his considerable influence. Yeah. 
And I, when one thinks of the multitude of people that will come and go through a, a park during mm -hmm. just a single year, it's astonishing to think that there is this great unacknowledged debt of gratitude that should be paid to to a designer like Albert Good. Uh, yeah. To whom I don't think Good was a camper. I mean, at least from what I can glean of his work, I don't think he was. He was an architect first and foremost, and I think that's important to acknowledge that uh, campgrounds are architectural in some ways, right? In terms of their setting. Um, and so I'm really proud of the fact to be an architect, but also to have that kind of connection that another architect, you know, 80 years later is able to kind of come in. And I want to think in some way, extend the legacy of good. I mean, that's a big ambition, probably far beyond my own abilities, but no, one no, that no, is able I, to update, you know, some of the I, thinking. I disagree. I think it's well within your ability and you succeeded in doing so. Uh, just take, for instance, yours truly, the, the man to whom you're talking right now. Mm -hmm. I had never known of Albert Good prior to this, uh, prior to reading this book. And, and now I'm struck by him. Like you said, there's not a lot of information about his life. If you, if you try to research him there, I don't even think he has a Wikipedia page. It's almost as though he never existed if you don't have a Wikipedia page. Uh, so there's not a lot to be found. And you succeeded brilliantly in, in preserving his, his memory and his more than his memory, his drawings uh, of which I'd like to show maybe just two. If I hope that they, they come through clearly on the, on yep. the candle. So if you can see that, that is a, a depiction or a blueprint of the, the camp um, fire site. And you can see, hopefully, just how fine the lines are drawn, how finely they're drawn, how exact the measurements are. I mean, it's absolutely, uh, from an architectural standpoint, I think, impressive, but just from an artistic point of view as well, really so quite, all of the text is, is written by, by hand. So there's a kind of incredible craft and the the handwritten notes across throughout the book and and uh all of good's drawings were also in grayscale and black and white so there's another kind of parallel there between the um my own book which is all in grayscale yeah and a beautiful minimalism of these but every note every label here is all handwritten it's just beautifully executed yeah and as, as someone who takes a small amount of pride in his penmanship. Uh, mm -hmm. I was I was very impressed by the oh. way in which the way in which it's written. The the font is just is just gorgeous. And to mm -hmm. think that a man could could do this uh, freehand without uh, the the help of a of a typewriter is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Especially today when you know we could go weeks without <laughs> writing anything. You know, physically we we type and tap and swipe and hardly have any need for that sort of meticulous care in. Mm -hmm in communicating our ideas, whether they right. be visual or, or um, words, you know, uh, pictorial or, or verbal in a sense. Yeah. So yeah, uh, like I said, for those listening and, and watching, please uh, get yourself a copy because just looking at the way in which he draws a grill or a, or a stage or a, um, a campground in its totality is just absolutely stunning. Now, are there any other big names in the history of, of campsite development with which we should be familiar? I think those stand, he, his, his name stands above all, all others, I think, in my view. Uh, there are other 
similar books that were being published at around the same period of time where campgrounds were starting to acquire this more structured kind of quality. But I think all of those books, if you look closely, are all informed by Good's work also. So in that sense, I think he, um, I, I guess I would, I might say another individual who has been profoundly influential, uh, Emilio Meineke, who was another in, individual who at the end of the 1920s and 30s really started to codify the impact of the motor vehicle in natural settings. And so he's the first to uh, become extremely worried about the impact that vehicles like, you know, uh, leaking oil and vehicles moving around a campground, you know, crushing shrubs and tearing off barks off of trees. Like he was the first to really start to propose these one-way loop roads and parking spurs that are so common now in campsite design. So Meineke is and Good are the two most important figures at this sort of early design stage it, of campgrounds. Emilio Meineke, is he perhaps the main, the, the namesake of the Meineke company? I am not sure. I mean, uh, information on Meineke is, is uh, maybe a bit scarce also, but it um, uh, was a, a, a plant pathologist for the, uh, was hired as a consultant for the Park Service to kind of investigate the negative impact of motor vehicles in these campgrounds, which at first were just big open fields where you can park and sort of aggregate. But he quickly started to realize that these were causing a lot of problems. And so uh, extremely important figure, but one that is um, kind of drafted a few memos that became really crucial in the development of campgrounds. And good is one who really started to formulate the whole array of structures that we encounter like toilets and fire pits and campsites and the whole range of you know uh, piers on uh, lake fronts and so on all of that infrastructure is one that uh, we we owe to to um to albert good i think yeah and his services will be acknowledged on this channel that's for sure <laughs> there's um, a, i mean i think a, a really quick uh, trip to, uh, I think, you know, archive.org has uh, wonderful PDFs of both editions of those books available. And so if someone is interested in just taking a quick look, hundreds of pages, each one more beautiful than the, than the previous, it's quite a, quite, a few, quite a beautiful experience to just flip through those books, I think. Yeah, and, and they're so beautiful, as I said, and hopefully as I showed, one would be tempted even to to put them on on his or her wall as artwork. That's mm -hmm. how 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 gorgeously they are yes. are created. How how they are crafted. Yeah. Now your book encompasses the eight most significant features of camping. They are water, the campfire, the campsite, the map, the picnic table, the tent, the sleeping bag, and trash. Mm -hmm. uh, which of the eight was most interesting for you to research and write about, and why? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I'm, I will say that um, when I first wrote the chapter on the picnic table, so I had thought about campsites for maybe as a designer for 15 years, I've been researching the history of, of the campsite. It's after the picnic table, writing a, a, a single essay on the picnic table, because I was really curious to, to know the, the origins of that that element that's so ubiquitous in our landscape, right? It's not just, we don't just, we don't encounter them only at campgrounds or campsites, they're everywhere. 
it's after writing that particular essay that I started to realize maybe there was a methodology that I could start to apply to other important components of the of the campsite or the camping experience. So I would say that that one is pretty crucial in the kind of starting to realize that there was a book here to be written. Yeah. But so the big chapter is super fun. I mean, it was individually, like I was never writing two at once. I was finishing an entire essay before I could move on to the next. So each one was really captivating its own right. Yeah, just to to demonstrate the ubiquity and the various uses <laughs> of, the, yeah. of the picnic table. You know, yeah. you have you have it depicted in film. Mm-hmm. At the bottom, uh, yep. Yeah, and then also in you know, the high stakes political conversation between uh, two former uh, high-ranking officials in our nation's government. And then we contrast that to what I think is my favorite image, uh, excluding all of the great um, uh, designs by Albert Good. Yeah. Perhaps my favorite image is this one here, if you can see it. Mm-hmm. And that is from, let me get the date, from 1886. Yeah. And it shows this beautiful but crude picnic table the two men seated at it are um, impeccably dressed at least in black and white they have their hats on the one gentleman is is seated with absolutely perfect posture as he looks down at his meal in front of him and and likewise uh, the other man um, to his in front of him is is doing the same uh, in the background of which there are you know men preparing the food and and ladling and and um, finishing the meal. It, it, that to me, I think, is is the finest image in the entire book. Um, and again, it it's it's the picnic table as you just described. So, right. Perhaps- well, it's um yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a structure developed for to accommodate seating. I think the and it shows. Yeah, I think the evolution of that to uh, some of the more common structures that we now know to be picnic tables is the the evolution of that need to be able to sit uh, at our campsite that has really been transformed over time into a kind of object a commodity that we often build in a shop or will bring to the campsite whereas the the picnic table you were referring to is the one that's really built in and from the campsite itself from materials that were found trees that were fallen in or near the campsite. So it's a very, very different kind of uh, connection to that activity of seeing. Do you think our collective uh, romanticization and fascination, uh, romanticization of and fascination with the picnic table bespeaks our fundamental communal nature as human beings? Because what is it? It's the, it's the table around which everyone or at which everyone sits to consume a meal, to, to pass stories, right? Do you think that is the reason why it's so compelling a feature of campsites? Yeah, I know, I, I, I would agree. I think there is a, absolutely a kind of social dimension to that experience, yes. Uh, so speaking of the picnic table, let's talk about what is served on that picnic table. Uh, tell me, what is the best campsite meal that you've personally ever consumed? <laughs> um, oh, I can think of many, I think, um, a few uh, in Acadia National Park we were able to kind of grill some some seafood scallops, I think, that we found at, at a lo- local market brought back with us to our campsite. So there's a, a few meals that really stand out as uniquely 
I mean, I, I guess I will say that I think any meal prepared at a campsite feels to me it tastes better than if you were to cook the exact same meal in your kitchen at home. You know, there's a kind of overcoming, uh, big quotes here, some of the challenges lighting a fire, maintaining the campfire cooking that seems to make all of those meals uniquely tasty. <laughs> I think there's something similar about the, the grill at, in the early days of summer. Sure. I remember as a child, whenever the grill was turned on, and it wasn't regularly turned on in our, in our house or outside our house, uh, but when it was, there was always a, an indescribable quality about a, a properly grilled or an improperly grilled steak. There's or just that, that essence to it that is uncaptured by anything that you could ever order or cook indoors. Yeah. And let me ask you uh, if you could devise a menu for uh, you know, a camping meal for those, your wife and uh, Horace Kephart and some of the other people that yeah. you uh, would be accompanied by, what would you serve? What would be your ideal meal? Wow, that is a tough question. Um, I was recently, um, I gave a, a small lecture a few, maybe a month and a half ago, where uh, this young woman asked me about if I knew anything about the history of s'mores. And it sent me on this wild goose chase to figure out just where s'mores s'mores had had originated from and i was so impressed with um that insight that you know i taught i'd given a lecture about the campfire the history of the fire and cooking and she asking about s'mores it was such a delightful question that i think uh, it sent me on like a one-week research project to so, figure so out we're all, we're all wondering what were the fruits of that research no it was great i mean i think there's what, some what, is, the, what is the history of the s'more <laughs> There, there's some ambiguity, as there always are, but there are some cookbooks from the early 1920s, 1910s, uh, from the Girl Scouts that refer to this new treat that is being uh, produced at the campfire. But there, and we know that the graham cracker, the marshmallow, are are inventions that really predate this particular period. But I think the first published mention of the name, like some mores or s'mores, is actually a little bit, um, is a little bit later than the first published recipes for that treat, which were kind of known by, by other names be before. But I would say it's around that kind of peer period of time. But I thought that was such a wonderful question to be asked that was like, I mean, to me, camping and s'mores are always connected, but to, for somebody to ask that, I thought was so great. And it was a, a really wonderful research project to try to answer her question. Oh, yeah. I mean, the two are just synonymous. Uh, a campsite is hardly complete without a s'more. And maybe that would have been the ninth <laughs> feature <Sure>. if you could <laughs> extend your book or perhaps right. produce a sequel. Uh, and history of the s'more would, I think, be appropriate for work such as yours. So yeah. around what time was that? You mentioned it was sort of the Girl Scouts. In what area and around what time? Uh, I would say 1910s, 1920s. Uh, I, um, again, the graham cracker exists before that time. And marshmallow is actually the kind of the treat itself, even though we think of it as a kind of mass-produced commodity now, really exists uh, centuries ago, like it only became a confection, like a kind of candy or a treat in the 19th century. So uh, 
the, the it, it's kind of interesting that these the chocolate the marshmallow and the graham cracker are all eyeing one, one another and somehow find a way to kind of meet right around the campfire but it's really through cookbooks that those first practices or the recipe for the smallest bean was formulated at least to the best of my knowledge as things go that could change I'm, I haven't given up on researching that further, but as, from what I know now around that period. Fascinating. It's just one of those perfect American yeah. foods. <laughs> uh, the s'mores, the cheeseburger, uh, hot dogs, <laughs> things like that. Uh, just, yeah, they're uh, all, just yeah. If it's it, a sandwich, it's a sandwich. And so they're all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess <laughs> that's it. And, and sandwich etymologically goes back to the Earl of Sandwich, who was a, a British uh, aristocrat during the, the colonial period. Uh, so yeah, that's why I love America. Like you look at the s'more, what is it? Like you said, it's a graham cracker. Well, named after, who was it? Sylvester Graham, yeah. who, who created these foods that were basically supposed to dampen the sexual urge. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it's a strange kind of a history. Um, and then the marsh, I've always been fascinated by marshmallow because we call them in, in English, we always say marshmallow. It's spelled marshmallow. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are references to these, like you said, um, many, many, many years ago. Uh, so I, I don't know enough about that sort of confection. I, I don't know the way in which it evolved and developed to what it is now. Um, but I know that there are very old references to, yep. to mallows. So I don't know exactly what, what is involved there. And then you have a quintessential, you know, the middle is the, the Hershey's chocolate. And so that's another kind of interesting component that's added in. So I agree, uh, you know, if you're not serving a marshmallow or a marshmallow uh, as dessert for your for your camping uh, site uh, experience, then you're doing something wrong. You have failed uh, as a camper. <laughs> right, uh, right, undoubtedly. <laughs> There's only really one way to fail, <laughs> and that's right. the way. Um, now, you mentioned this earlier that you know, there's a park in New York that, well, whose design I think that you helped to establish and now oversee. Maybe it's a different park. You mentioned the art park, but I think in the book yeah. you mentioned that there's that there's another park. Um, just very briefly, maybe you can explain to us, you know, how one goes about um, establishing a park. You kind of touched on that in a couple different ways, but but maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Uh, and then I want to ask you, unconstrained by any financial or geographical or practical con considerations, which you deal with all day as an architect, um, what would be your ideal park? What would it include? What sort of a picturesque background would it be set up against? Uh, you know, near what sort of body of water would it be situated? What would it be like? Well, I think that, yeah, the, the structure, the facility I helped develop was, is located in a, in an art park. It's about a 104 acre, I think, sculpture park in outside of Syracuse in the Casanova, New York. It's a beautiful setting, uh, that has, uh, you know, traditional kind of artworks that are sculptures around, but also a network of trails and, uh, a number of more contemporary art projects that are really dealing with the land and sort of larger spaces across the across the, the the area of the park. So my what I propose for four weekends every summer is this um, to 
turn some designated areas across the, the art park into a campground. And so all of the facilities I introduce into, uh, into the project are all painted this really bright blue. So the, the picnic tables are bright blue. There's a number of other elements, uh, kind of Adirondack chairs around the campfire. So you see them as a kind of this singular color and you associate all of those elements together as a system that creates this um, this so-called campground. But uh, it only exists for a couple weekends every summer. So once the project concludes, all the stuff is moved into storage. So there's no permanent facility there, um, which I think is really interesting in itself. Um, as for the larger question, oof, that's a really difficult one. I mean, to me, I think what's really interesting about uh, what I've been exploring is both the similarity between the facilities themselves across the country, something that's facilitated by people like Albert Good, like the kind of setting is quite similar, whether you're in Idaho or Maine or in Colorado. So there's a kind of standardization of that experience, but then juxtaposed against the idea of the broader landscape or the background where that, uh, that experience is taking place. And so I like to think about place both in terms of the immediate setting, but also the broader setting as well. And it's the conflation of those that I think that, that makes it a really positive experience. Um, if that, if that makes sense, like it's both about the kind of interiority of the, the setting of the campground and then kind of where it is also. And both of those are me meaningful. One is quite standardized and then the other one is unique. You know, it's where, where you are. I mean, we, we camped on Antelope Island in the middle of the Great Salt Lake in Utah. It's an extraordinary place. Just the setting itself is magnificent. But when you look when I'm looking at the picnic table itself, while we're eating, contemplating the landscape, it, it itself is quite standard, right? So there's always a kind of juxtaposition of what's near and what, what's far that I always find really enjoyable when we go camping. Yeah, in a certain way, it does reflect the America's motto, e pluribus unum, out of many one. Out of many parks, there is a certain consistency, a thread that, that yeah. links them all. Uh, yeah. so, so there I go again, sort of abstracting, perhaps something that doesn't need to be abstracted. <laughs> but uh, Martin, I want to thank you again for being so generous with your time me today and, and sharing all of this fascinating information. Again, I'll recommend that everybody goes out and gets a copy of this very fine book, Making Camp a Visual History of Camping's Most Essential Items and Activities. Again, it enumerates the eight features of which we all make use when we're at our camping sites, but very seldom uh, recognize or think about. Uh, so your book is, I think, going to be very useful for thousands of campers uh, going forward who are who are picking their lots and settling in for a good time. Uh, so. Let me ask you, Martin, before we depart, where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media or to contact you? Is there a platform of which they should make use? Um, I, I, I love to be on Instagram. So I'm always, I've been posting about my book the last few months. So Hogue underscore Martin, uh, that's always a good one. And of course, uh, always happy to 
take people's emails and questions. So I think if you go, uh, it's Martin Hoag, one word at cornell.edu, that's always a good place too. But I'm always excited when people have questions or want to share some of their experiences. I think camping is one of those things that I think all of us have experienced in some ways, and it never fails during a Q&A on the book that people will automatically connect to one of their own personal experiences. And so it's a, it's a wonderful way to share uh, our own humanity and experiences. And so that's one of, one of, one of the wonderful benefits of, having, of, of working on this topic. Yeah. And I can say personally that I'm one of the beneficiaries of your willingness to reach out and uh, talk with uh, inquisitive minds who are, who are looking to learn a little bit more about, about your work. Uh, now, I think that was beautifully put. Do you have any other final messages uh, with which you'd like to leave us? Um, I, just that I think um, um, not all campers are, are the same. And I think to acknowledge your own individuality in doing so, what our standards are, what our expectations are, and uh, to uh, uh, some people like to be in solitary, uh, to, to head out on their own. Some others like to be surrounded by friends and family. I think that there's an incredible range here uh, of, of possible experiences to be, to be found, and we need to celebrate that. I couldn't have put it better myself, and I would locate myself in the former camp, again, no pun intended, of the solitary adventurers who are going <laughs> yeah. into, into nature alone. Martin, a thousand thanks to you for being to join me. Uh, my audience, small though you are, but growing and vigorous and vital, a thousand thanks to you. Again, I encourage you all to share this episode with family, with friends, with enemies, with those with whom you hope to camp one day. I think that this information is indispensable. I love having these long, deep conversations, and I hope that you enjoy them as well. So with that, everyone out there, I bid thee farewell from Finneran's Wake. I'm Daniel Finneran, signing off. Thank you. Shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. 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 Daniel.